You're listening to teaching from the Word of God, provided by Black Forest Chapel. This is the church where you will find biblical teaching and authentic worship with family and friends. We are located in Black Forest near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs, Colorado. We invite you to join us this Sunday. Find our location, worship times, and more at blackforestchapel.org. Well, for those of you visiting, welcome to Black Forest Chapel. For those of you, this is your home. Um, we're glad to glad you're here this morning. Um, that we can worship together. I'll probably have to make some detours now around all this stuff because I pace a lot, as you'll notice. So you have to excuse that. Um, one thing before we we begin with the message, um, as I was just talking a little bit about the the changes and and. Um, how we worship, why are we here, those things. That was a lot just for me, too. Um, I think we all struggle on one side or the other. This is We are not to be engaged in a civil war, especially in our church body. We are not to be divided. Um, we are complying with the law because we, we love each other. We want to be here. We want to gather together, and so we're happy to do those things. Um, I'm not right, and, and many of you are also not right in some of the arguments that we make. That's okay. We have our strong opinions and beliefs, and so um, those might come out a little more easily for me because I've got a microphone and you don't. Um, but it doesn't mean <laughs> that there's any, um, any angst toward anybody. This is more of a personal thing. This is, this is between me and the Lord and just my own sin wanting to control things that I can. So I'm working through that, as I'm sure all of you are as well. So um, that's the disclaimer as we move forward. Um, for those of you who have been here for the last few weeks, this is our fourth week in the series, a uh, new series in the book of Exodus. So we're going to be um, walking through this book. We'll get done Hopefully the COVID will be done by then. It'll be probably a few years before we're, we're done with this message. No, we're, we're going to move through it at a healthy pace as the Holy Spirit leads. Um, this is hopefully going to be beneficial for us as a body. We finished uh, the end of Genesis and the story of Joseph, and it just felt like it was the right decision, the right direction to continue on in the book as the story continues so we can continue with it as God speaks to us. And so... Um, we started by looking at just the beginning. God's promises were um, uh, were given again. Uh, he started with his promises with his people, with with the, the sons of Israel, and he and we watched him begin to fulfill his promises and making a great nation. God was making the Israelites, the Hebrew people, very numerous to the point where a new pharaoh that had come into power was, was not very happy about that. He was getting scared. They were too, too many in number and they were too strong. And so we saw Pharaoh begin to try to usurp or stop or overrule God's plan and we see that he can't do that. Every time he tried to stop God and God's people, God overruled him. Right? Providential care and in his sovereign might and in his power um, as, 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 as Pharaoh tried to oppress God's people, God grew his people even more, more and more. Going from 70 people originally all the way to over, well over 2 million people by the time the, the actual fleeing of Egypt, the exodus actually takes place. So God is at work and he cannot be stopped. And so Pharaoh tried to stop by putting his people, putting all of the Hebrew people under intense slavery, bitter, hard service. He afflicted them with heavy burdens, the scriptures say. And every time he did that, God's people flourished. And also God's people cried out to their God. They depended on him. So Pharaoh, by doing this, was actually invoking the very thing he was trying to stop, which was God preparing to remove his people from Egypt. And then we looked at the week two, just how we are to fear God and nothing else. And so plan B for Pharaoh was to get the midwives secretly to go and kill all the newborn babies, baby boys that were, that were born in, in, uh, amongst the Hebrews. And these two midwives were, were God-fearing women, and they wouldn't do it. And so God blessed them, actually, with families of their own, and so God continues to grow, Right? the very thing that Pharaoh was trying to stop. And so then Pharaoh decided to do a decree for all of the people, all of Egypt, any newborn baby boy needs to be thrown into the Nile, needs to be exposed and killed. And he he has that edict that goes out. And and last week, Scott Barbie 
shared with us about the birth of Moses, and he talked to us about what it looks like to have faith and courage and compassion from the, the characters of that part of the story, Moses' mother and his sister Miriam and Pharaoh's daughter. And Scott came up with a great acronym, the, the BFC, right? The, the Bravery, Faith, and Compassion. So he's, he used that up now, so I can either try that again. I'll have to probably make up a lot of words, or we'll just leave that one go. But it's very memorable, right? It's very good. But these were great expressions of faith, of courage, of compassion from these women. Ultimately, God's using them to save his servant, his deliverer, his chosen one, which was Moses. And so that's where we, we ended last week. And so this morning we're going to be in Exodus chapter 2, and we're going to start with verse 11. I like to pray as we open God's word. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word, that by your Holy Spirit you've inspired the scriptures through human authors. And you've done so for our help, for our edification, for our growth, ultimately for our salvation. And Lord, as, as those of us who believe in you, Lord, it is for our sanctification to become more like you, to be holy as you are holy. You've called us to walk differently in this world, to be light in the darkness, to no longer conform to the pattern of this world, Father, but to have our minds renewed. We are to be living sacrifices, Father, giving ourselves up for the sake and the cause of Christ and not for our own selfish gain. So help us, Father, this morning as we open your scriptures. Speak to us, please. We're listening. Help us to receive. Help us to walk in this truth, to obey you, to experience the joy that comes by walking in faith and pleasing you, our Heavenly Father. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll begin by reading chapter 2, starting in verse 11. We're just going to finish chapter 2 this morning and, and talk about a few things. Verse 11 says, One day, when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, an Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. She gave birth to a son, and he called his name Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. As we talked about a few weeks ago, the story of Exodus is a story of God's great salvation, of God saving his people. And we see this as being a historical narrative really moving toward the ultimate salvation in Jesus Christ. So all of the Old Testament points toward the need, points to the need for a Savior, points toward the, the coming Savior, the New Testament. The Savior has come, and the Savior will come again. And so we've got we to read it in light of that. And God is doing a great work, and God is the one doing the work, and God uses people to do the work to be sure, and God has a people that he has set his love on. He has chosen a people. He has chosen Israel to be his, his nation, his people, those who would glorify him, be different than the world around him, around them. So God, at this point, is just making the nation. He's starting to fulfill his promise by, 
by growing this nation, and they are growing in their desire to be released from slavery. There's been a heavy burden put on them. And so from this part of the passage, as Moses grows up and, and begins to act, he's a man of action, obviously. There's a, there's a couple main things I want to draw out from this text. Uh, the title of the sermon is just Preparing Moses, that all of God's, all of God's leaders, all of, all of the people that God uses to help and to save and to instruct and to lead and to, to love his people are, are those who are being prepared to do that in some way or another. And Moses is, is no exception. So God is preparing Moses. The first thing we want to look at is that Moses went out to his people. Moses went out to his people. And sometimes we just read through this stuff real cursory, real quick. We don't stop to consider the words and, and how God is um, communicating to us. Once again, this is the Holy Spirit through Moses as he writes this. Let's read verses, uh, verse 11 again in one verse. One day when Moses had grown up, and we know later, we'll look in Acts chapter 7, that Moses was about 40 years old at this point. Um, so he's, he's grown up. He's 40 years old. He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. One of the things we looked at when we study hermeneutics or biblical interpretation is repetition. There's a, a repetition here of his people. Moses was nursed by his mother. We, we saw God do amazing things in the last section, right, as, as Scott brought the word last week. We saw God use the very means that he was killing babies, the Nile, as a means of salvation for Moses. We saw that God used Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's the one who has the edict to kill all the babies, and yet his daughter is the one who had compassion and saved Moses. And then we see Pharaoh's daughter giving Moses as a baby back to his own mother because of Miriam's courage to nurse him. And not only that, they, they they paid her for it. So this is, all, this is God's economy. He, he turns things around. He, he benefits his people for his glory and his purposes. It's amazing. <clears throat> and so he was nursed. Some, some scholars say it might have been six months. Some say maybe two to three years that he was possibly nursed. But at some point he leaves, and he's truly the daughter of the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He's in the Egyptian court. He's being trained up. And there's 40 years now of that training, of all that education, the best the world has to offer, right? He's trained up and he, he lives as an Egyptian. And so for us to look at this and see that he calls the Hebrews, he went out to them, his people, more than once, twice within one verse. He went out to his people, looked on their burdens, one of his people. Moses is completely and fully identifying with the Hebrews, with Israel as one of God's chosen. I don't know exactly what happened or why, except for we'll see in a little bit in Hebrews that God laid it on his heart. And in Acts 7, and we'll get there a little bit later, but in Acts 7 it says, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. It came into his heart. God was working on him. Something was happening. He was being softened. He saw the burdens. He was being trained as an, as an Egyptian to, to hate the Hebrews. They're an abomination, remember? They're, they're, he was trained actually to, to suppress them, to oppress them, to keep them under heavy burdens. That was, their, that was the job. And yet God was working on his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. Something changed in his heart where he decided to identify with the Hebrews and not with Egypt. And he went out and he saw his people. He looked on their burdens. This word looked, it's not just a casual glance. It's an intent wanting to understand. He really was empathetic. There was a compassion that was rising up for these people. He identified with them. He saw their burdens. He felt their burdens. If we turn to Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 and Acts 7 will be the two other passages that we're in this morning that help round out this story. It provides extra information, helps us to get into the mind and heart of Moses a little bit. So Hebrews 11. And if you are familiar with the book of Hebrews, it was written um, primarily as an encouragement to the persecuted Jewish Christians. 
So there were early Jewish Christians that were seeing heavy persecution because of their beliefs, because of the, just the scorn of the cross, because of the name of Christ, this was going to come. And so some of these Jewish Christians were beginning to slip back into their old rituals and rites of Judaism. They were, they were, they were going back to the law. They were going back to um, the things that they knew. Judaism was considered really a state-sponsored religion. It was safe, Right? It was safe. There were rules involved. It controlled the people. And so there, were, there was less danger being in Judaism than there was to follow the name of Christ. And so because of this great persecution, there was a desire, maybe a, a, a temptation to go back to the old ways. The former days. And Hebrews talks a lot about that Christ is a better way. Christ is better than the angels, right? Christ is a, is a better sacrifice once and for all. That there is no other way except for Christ. What are you going back to? If we look at um, Hebrews 10, 32, that'll give us a little flavor of the, the, the nature, the context of this, of this letter. Hebrews 10, 32 says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach. And this idea of reproach means to be scorned, to, be, to have an expression of disgrace or disapproval. Um, uh, the, their names were being defamed. There was just a lot of mockery and um, a lot of uh, really persecution that came with following Jesus. Exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So they were... They were identifying with those also who were being under reproach and affliction because of the name of Christ. It says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So they were being persecuted with, with property, with finances, all of those things. And they endured those initially. They endured those for the sake of Christ. They were excited. There was hope for the first time. The, the law made sense. This Jesus made sense. He actually provided freedom. He had the words of life. He was the Messiah that all the scriptures that they had memorized were, were talking about and pointing towards. There was an excitement. They were willing to endure all of these things, at least at the beginning. And he's reminding them about that. Verse 35, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that even when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back, verse 39, and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and, perse- and persevere, uh, preserve their souls. Let me read verse 39 again. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So don't give up. Don't, you need to endure. Remember what happened. Remember all the struggles you went through for the name of Christ. He will come back. He is coming. He will have no pleasure in you if you give up now and return back to your former ways. Don't give up. And as an encouragement to the Jewish Christians, we have the Hall of Faith. We have chapter 11. And let's, you know, let's look at all these faithful people that, that were tested as well. They were tested to the point. Look at Abraham. He was, he, was, he was instructed to kill his own son, but he had faith believing that God could even raise the dead. So he was willing to do these things. Let's look at all these different people. And we move down to verse 23, so 1123. And we talk about Moses. And there's not much print here in some of these, these um, declarations, proclamations of faithful followers of God. And so whatever, whatever is given here has to be kind of important, right? Because if you think of the 40 chapters in Exodus and then you think of you know, Leviticus and we're moving into Numbers and Deuteronomy, you're thinking of all that Moses went through and all that he did in his life and all the, the different, different events you can remember from childhood stories or from reading the scriptures. There were a lot of things you could choose from here that drew out the faith of Moses. And so we just have a few things to look at. One of them is the Passover. One of them is crossing the Red Sea. Just the Exodus in general. But we don't see a lot of things here about the, all the, the plagues and the, the miracles that Moses performed. What is the first thing that we see? 
we see that his parents were faithful. It says, by faith, Moses, verse 23, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. There's faith. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, so this is the the context for our our chapter 2 text today. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He has broken away from his Egyptian name, from his Egyptian identity. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses made a decision there was a line drawn and he, he crossed it and decided, I'm no longer going to identify with Egypt and all the fleeting pleasures of sin. Think of it, 40 years just being filled up with whatever he, he desired, whatever he wanted was at his fingertips. And yet God was working in him and moving in him and he's watching his people and he knew he belonged there. And he chose to be mistreated with them instead. He chose to go out. This, when, when we read that he went out, to his people, that word went out in the original is the same word that we get for the word exodus, for the word exit. And many believe, and it makes sense contextually, that Moses, essentially, before he could lead God's people out of Egypt, he had to leave Egypt himself from his heart. He had to break from all of the temptations and all the the sinful pleasures that were part of his existence in his life. He had to remove all of those things and move toward his godly family. And so Moses had to go out first. He had to leave Egypt first, figuratively, if not physically, definitely spiritually from the heart. He had to leave Egypt. And then he began to identify with God's people, choosing to be mistreated. I mean, he's been watching this. Think about, he's been watching, we, we, we get these pictures, but I mean, we, we get a few, you know, uh, word pictures with heavy affliction, heavy burdens. I mean, the people are crying out. There's, there's so much violence, even to the point where he, he comes back the next day and two of his, two of his brothers, two of his, two of his Hebrew brothers are fighting each other. Why? Because there's just a general, just, just, there's a environment, there's a ethic, there's a foundation of violence everywhere. That's all they know. Every day they are beaten. They are pushed down. They are oppressed. It was vicious, it was violent, it was horrible, it was brutal. This is the same Pharaoh that is willing to commit infanticide and just kill babies and commands his whole culture, his whole, his whole society to kill babies out of his fear for these people. So Moses is watching this, he's seeing all of this. He knows what, what it would be to actually join them truly. He would be mistreated with them in the same way. And yet he chose to do that rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Obviously, Christ was not yet on the scene, physically on earth as a man. He didn't know Christ at the moment. The reproach of Christ, though, is just the full identification with the one true God. Jesus was rejected. Jesus was crucified because of his identification with the one true God, claiming to be the Son of God, which he, which he is. He was punished for it. Jesus was scorned ridiculed, disgraced. He had to endure the shame of the cross, not just to be killed, but to be killed publicly, visibly, helplessly, in a torturous fashion. He endured the shame of the cross. This is the reproach that Moses, the same type of reproach that Moses was willing to endure. 
He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to his reward. He heard all the stories. Maybe in his education, he took an elective class and he took, you know, Hebrew on Friday evenings just to understand who these people are and where they came from. Maybe he had contact with his parents. I don't know exactly, but he understood the promises. He understood the reward that was to come, that nothing on this earth was worth it. Maybe he, in light, in the same vein as Solomon, tried everything, tried to, tried to squeeze every bit of pleasure out of the world, and there was nothing that was, there was nothing that was fulfilling, nothing satisfied him. And so, and he's looking at these, these Hebrews, those who are oppressed constantly, those who are beat down constantly, and he sees them continue to flourish, continue to grow. Something's different here. I don't know exactly how he learned these things, but he did, and he understood the reward. He would rather have this reproach of Christ. He'd rather be identified with the one true God. He'd rather be identified as a Hebrew, as a threat to Pharaoh and his whole kingdom. He'd rather be identified as a son of, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the son of a Levite, a Hebrew abomination. He'd rather be identified with those that keep causing Pharaoh to get angrier and angrier and more murderous in his actions. And by doing that, Moses brought the same reproach that Christ brought upon himself. And that's really why Moses is a great type. Um, he's a foreshadowing of Christ to come in many ways. He was obviously God's chosen, a deliverer of God's people out of slavery into the promised land, just as Jesus was the, the true Savior. Jesus was much greater in that he saved us from our sins so that we might have eternal life with God. But in similar fashion, Moses left the palace, right? He went out from Egypt. He left and he went among his people that he was called to save. Jesus left the the glory of heaven, the throne room of heaven, and he came down to earth, Emmanuel, God with us. He came to the very people that he was going to save. The beautiful story. So Moses went out to his people. There's a lot in that little, that little verse. He went out. He left Egypt. He went to his people. He identified with them. He brought the reproach of Christ on himself, and he considered that far better than anything else. We see this in one other person pretty strongly, and that's the Apostle Paul. We see Paul with all of the, all of the uh, uh, pedigree and credentials and education and all the fervor you could want, right? As Saul, as the the ravager of the church, the persecutor of the church. And we see God calling him and, and, and preparing him and sending him and, and afflicting him for his name's sake. And so Paul suffered many things. He was an instrument in God's hand. And Paul had everything. He had all these things. He had everything you could ever want, right? The status, the pedigree. And if we look at Philippians chapter 3, we see what it's worth to him once he encountered Christ, once he identified fully with Jesus, the one he was persecuting in the first place. Philippians 3, uh, chapter 4, or verse 4, Paul says, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For, this, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's willing to identify fully with Jesus all of the suffering, but also all of the glory as well. That's the promise. That I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
Paul was willing to identify with Christ fully, count everything else as lost. Moses is doing the same thing here. He's on a good track. He's making good decisions, right? This is a good start. This is a good... God has prepared him in many ways as a son of Egypt, but he's, he's, he's making the right decision. He's identifying fully with his people. And so the question this morning for us, as we think about that, do you consider the reproach of Christ greater wealth than any treasure in this world? It, it seems counterintuitive. Why would I, why would I think that being um, falsely accused, scorned, ridiculed, defamed, disgraced, being recognized, identified with someone who, who had to go to the shame of the cross, why would that be of any benefit? Well, the reproach of Christ means that you belong to him. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. You're his. You can't be snatched away from his hands. He is the treasure. He is the greatest treasure. He is the one of great value and of great worth. He's the one that deserves our full affection. He's the one that we should be sacrificing everything to to get a hold of. What reward are you looking for? You know, as God sends us into the world to love others, just like Moses here, as he sends us in the world to love others, he also is working to get the love of the world out of us. He has to. We can't be an effective tool. One of the reasons I think we don't see much fruit from being sent ones, from being saints, from being those who are called, is because we live too much like worldly ones. We're, we're sent ones. We're, we're called out of this world to be like Christ and then go back into the world to give the message of Jesus Christ to those who are lost. But we don't look much different than the world around us. So what do we have to offer that's any value to anyone? Do you consider the reproach of Christ greater than greater wealth than the treasures of this world? Nothing else should matter to us, nothing on this earth. Moses went out to his people, identified fully with them. This was a this was a good thing, this was a blessing. Do you identify fully with Jesus? Have you gone out away from this world? Have you left Egypt behind and all of its treasures, its fleeting pleasures of sin? That's something we just need to talk about um, with our families, with our spouses, with our parents, with our children. How are we living this life? Are we much different than the world around us? When it comes to all of this stuff, this this COVID stuff, the these are the moments of heightened tension, of heightened aggression, frustration, apathy, depression. I mean, the, the gamut of emotion is just unbelievable in, in the midst of all of these changes. All the uncertainty, the strain that's on all the, all the people around us, including ourselves. And so, so we have to bring something to the conversation besides just, just, just more lighter fluid on the fire, right? We have our opinions. That's fine. We have hope, and people don't. How are, you, how are you dealing with this personally in your prayer closet, with your time with the Lord, with your, in, in your time of discipleship, in your Bible study? How are you dealing with this? Are you being honest about it? Are you letting God deal with your heart so that you're not walking around frustrated and angry, distracted, missing out on all that he has for you, missing out on amazing conversations with neighbors who are wanting to talk about something? They have nothing else to do. They have really nowhere else to go. Right? They, they want to talk about it. They need to process it. So are you that person? Can you sit down? Can you say, what's going on? What's, what's happening with your life? How, that's really frustrating. I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, I know I've, I've, I've experienced some of the same things, but thankfully, as I, as I read the word, I have a lot of hope. God's in control of these things, and that's not, that's not a platitude. It's not a bumper sticker for us. We understand the sovereignty of God based on the scriptures. We understand that he's in everything. And we rely on him and we give this to him and we trust him and we walk with him and we, we honor his name by doing those things. We need to be witnesses to him, both in our words and our walk. So Moses started out well. I think a lot of us start out well. We have good intentions, right? We, we want to identify with Jesus. We, we're willing to, 
to accept the reproach that comes with Christ, the shame that comes with his name. Maybe there's times when we, we kind of step back from that. Maybe there are times when we're tempted to deny him, and we have to repent of that and move forward. But ultimately, we, we're here. We're, we're, we're visibly here. We're the visible gospel. We believe in Jesus Christ. He is our Lord and Savior. No one else can save. We believe in him. And so Moses believed in the God of Israel, and he identified fully with them. That's a great start. And then it says he, he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. We're back in Exodus 2. And what Moses did next was the wrong thing, right? So the second point here is Moses tried to save his people, but in his own way. Moses tried to save his people, but in his own way. Verse 12, he looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely this thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down by a well. Moses tried to save his people in his own way here. This was always meant to be God's story, worked out in God's way, not Moses' way. And we see this if we, we're going to be in uh, Psalm 105 briefly, and then we'll be in Acts 7. But in Psalm 105, some of that was read this morning by our youth. You'll see clearly who receives the glory for all of these great things. This whole story of salvation, the story moving through Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and into Moses and and into the people of God as they exited Egypt. It says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, verse 1, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples. So So God's the one doing this, right? God's the one who saves. Sing to him, sing praises to him, tell of all his wondrous works. It's his wondrous works. I'm not going to read this all verbatim, but you're just going to see a a pattern here. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his presence continuously. Remember the wondrous works that he has done. His miracles and the judgments he uttered. God did this. Verse 7, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are on all the earth. He remembers. Verse um, 17, uh, or verse 16, when he, he summoned a famine on the land, God actually summoned the famine. It was in his control. He had a purpose for it. Verse 17, he sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was told, God did that. We went through that whole story. Verse 24, once they got to Egypt, and the Lord made his people very fruitful. The Lord did this and made them stronger than their foes. God did this. Verse 26, he sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen, right? Verse 28, he sent darkness. Verse 29, he turned the waters into blood. Verse 31, he spoke, and there came swarms of flies. Verse 32, he gave them hail. God did all of this. This was all God's story. This is all God's progress. This is his purpose and his plan and his promise, and he's fulfilling it. According to his power, his might, he is the one to receive all the glory, not man. And yet Moses tried to take matters into his own hands very quickly. He spent 40 years being prepared as Egypt's son to come out and to, to take God's people to the promised land. Acts chapter 7, I want to turn there. We're just going to round out the story with Stephen's speech. And Stephen addresses this passage, this story um, from Exodus. So, you might know in chapter 6, Stephen is seized. He, he's, he's a man full of the Holy Spirit. He's doing all these wonderful works. People are adding to their numbers. It's um, great many priests became obedient to the faith. So um, now it's starting to hit, get a little more personal with the powers that be. So Stephen is seized. He's accused. He's wrongly accused. They stirred up the people, stirred up the elders and the scribes, put him on, put him on trial, essentially, brought him before the council, set up false witnesses, it says in 6.13. And so, and then verse 15, which is, which is great. Um, actually, we'll just start in 13 and read, read through. 
Uh, he says, and they set up false witnesses who said, this is chapter 6, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Moses is still on the throne for them. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. <laughs> I, I just love that part. I don't know what you're going to do. Can you imagine trying to yell and falsely accuse and someone sit in their face is literally like an angel? Like, how do you do that? How do you, how do you make up things? I mean, how much sin really distorts our thinking, right? And, and what's right. So Steve was just sitting there, face of an angel, literally, right? And the high priest said, starting in chapter 7, are these things so? And so Stephen goes down through all of God's promises, starting with Abraham, through the patriarchs of Joseph, Joseph going to Egypt. He goes through the whole story. And verse 17 says, But as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. All right, same story. Until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. At this time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. He was mighty in his words and deeds. So Moses was mighty in his words and deeds. And later we'll see, why is he talking about I'm not eloquent of speech? Apparently he's mighty in his words and deeds. Maybe just he yells a lot, I don't know. But either way, we see that he, he was instructed, he was prepared, he was, he, he was a man of action, right? Verse 23, this is how we know he was 40. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. We already saw that. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed, the oppressed man, and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. Before we move on to verse 25, Moses was, he just had that defender personality. He, he had compassion on people. He was a man of action. He wanted to stop people that, that, that were being oppressed. He wanted to defend the weak. This is a good thing. This is not a bad thing. I can, I can understand where, he, where he's coming from. I can kind of get his personality a little bit. And then I also get the other part of his personality, which causes a problem here in verse 25. It says, he supposed, this is what's going on in his mind here, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you are brothers, why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. But verse 25 speaks to what happened here. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. At some point, Moses started to put the puzzle together and realized he was God's deliverer. He was this chosen, he's, this is perfect, I'm I'm actually a Hebrew. I identify with the Hebrews. I'm in the palace. I can, I can make something happen here. I'm educated in the Egyptian culture and language, and I've got a position of authority and status. Think back to Joseph and, and how perfectly he was situated at the age of 17, going through horrible suffering, but all of that was to prepare him to be number two in all of Egypt to then save God's people, to bring them from Canaan, to bring them from Hebron into Egypt, to save them, to save a multitude. Joseph was perfectly positioned by being in a place of power in Egypt. And he didn't abuse that. He still asked for permission. He was still respectful. He, he worked through the legal system, if you will. Right? But he brought his family. He made things happen. He trusted the Lord. God used him in great ways. Moses was, in, in a similar fashion, situated to be a mediator, if you will, right? to possibly get God's people to leave Egypt. And maybe he got this savior complex, or maybe he felt like this was the time, or maybe his emotions got the better of him that day. We're not sure, but he, he really thought that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. And so he used his own hand to murder an Egyptian. And by doing that, he actually created more of a problem. His brothers didn't trust him. His character was, 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 was thrown down a notch. 
This is the, what are you going to save us one Egyptian at a time? You're going to bury every one of these guys? All, I mean, is this really your plan? He, he became a joke. He, they thrust him aside. Because it was not about his hand, it was about God's. Moses appointed himself to be the savior of God's people. He was definitely chosen as God's deliverer, but only by God's hand would this great salvation take place. Moses was a chosen instrument. He was a defender. He was a man of action. He was going to be a leader. He was going to be a shepherd, but only by God's hand. How often do we discern God's will for our life? We know we're right, so we're, we're, we're we're moving in the right direction. We believe we're the person for this job. We believe we're, we have the right thing to say, but we do it in the wrong way at the wrong time. Right? And then we create a whole mess for ourselves. Instead of allowing God to do it, we saw in Psalm 105, God does everything. He's doing all these things. Yes, he's going to use Moses, but as an instrument. If you guys have a hammer on your workbench, it's, it's, if it's sitting on the bench, it's just a piece of metal and wood. Right? It doesn't do anything by itself. It's not until the craftsman picks it up and, and, and hammers the nail, puts the nail through the wood. Then it's, then it's a useful tool. Sometimes we take the initiative when God's not asking us to, or sometimes we take the initiative at the wrong time in the wrong way. I think a lot of us as husbands or wives would, would, would understand this in the sense that maybe you have something to say, you have a great insight, you are right about this situation. You are right. You know what you have. You have charts and data, and you have everything you need to make your arguments to prove that you're right about this. But you share this information at the wrong time, when your spouse is not able to receive it. Maybe she's going through or he's going through a bad day, and you bring this up at the wrong time in the wrong way, typically, and you create a giant mess. Your rightness is lost in the fog of discord, right? And ongoing tension. There's a right way and a wrong, wrong way. There's a right time and a wrong time. Moses was to be his instrument, but not like this. We know that murder is not right. We know that Moses will bring down some tablets from a mountain that, that proves that murder is not right. He knows that. And yet he's still engaged with murdering this Egyptian. And how do we know that this was not God's will for Moses to kill the Egyptian? Well, there's a couple clues in the text. If you, if you look in the text, there's some scholars out there who tried to argue that he was justified and all these things. And well, if, if it was okay for him to do this, verse 12, he looked this way and that, seeing no one. So it's pretty obvious that he knows what he's about to do is wrong, right? He's looking to see if he's going to get caught. So there's one piece of evidence. There's not the actions of an innocent man doing innocent things. He hid him in the sand, even with his authority and his place in the palace, and maybe he had the right to, for, to provide capital punishment. I don't know, but he didn't go about it the right way. He did it out of anger, out of emotion, out of seeing one of his brethren being beat, out of an identification with God's people, out of compassion and empathy, but in the wrong way, the wrong time. He hit him in the sand. He knows that he messed up. He was afraid once he was found out. Pharaoh sought to kill him. So all of these things prove that he did the wrong thing. This was not right. And he fled from Pharaoh and stayed in Midian. So Moses went out to his people. He did the right thing. He identified with the, with the right group. He understood who he belonged to, who his God was. And in his zeal and fervor, unfortunately, he tried to save his people in his own way, not in God's way. And so the last thing we see is that God took Moses back to school in the desert, right? He got a master's degree in humility. Unfortunately, it's a... Many, many credits, 40 years long. We see Moses' life being kind of chopped up in 40-year segments, 40 years in Egypt, and now he's going to be essentially in the desert. Midian is, is northwestern Arabia. It's wilderness. It's desert. It's great preparation for what's to come. But he spends another 40 years in preparation. So the encouraging thing is, he, you know, he's 80 years old before God calls him to 
lead his people out of Egypt. So those of you who are 80 or hovering somewhere in the 80s, you still have a lot of work to do. You still have a lot of life. God still has work for you. So be encouraged by that as much as you can be. The last thing here is that um, as God took Moses back to, the, to school in the desert, we see, I, I, I like this last little section here. Um, Moses fled from Pharaoh, stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. I love that little, and he sat down by a well. That's just, doesn't that, isn't that perfectly suited to end the scene? Isn't that what happens when we've messed up, when we've failed, when we've had these great discouragements or um, disappointments in our life? And he, he travels well over 300 miles, and he sits down by a well. This is God's staging point for the next phase of his training for preparing Moses. But he sits there. You can imagine all the adrenaline. All the, he had all that time to think about all the mistakes he made and all his life in Egypt. And you know, he's already left that behind. He wanted to be with his people. He thought he was the man. Maybe he's not the man. Maybe there's someone else that's, that's called to do this, and he was wrong. And now he's exiled, and he can never go back. And all those things are just stirring around. He sits down by the well just... Well, what's, what's next? Right? We've all had that sit down, what's next? One thing as I'm reading this, though, I, I think for my life, people that I've talked to and looking at Moses' life, great failures can really lead to great humility. Great failures can lead to great humility. But, but you can also go in the opposite direction. Great failures can lead to great despair, discouragement, and ultimately just kind of giving up apathy. And, and that's not what we see Moses doing here. We, we see him sitting down by a well, and then we see God providing the next step. Okay, you screwed that up, Moses, right? It's, it's like this guy, like, I remember playing basketball in high school. There were the, the guys riding the bench, they, 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 they were smart. They knew all the plays. They knew every position every person was supposed to be in. They, they knew what the coach wanted. They, they understood the game. They, they mentally were there. They were, they were trained for the game, except they'd never played in a game before. And then you put them in the game, and they have all this potential and all these great things. And what do they do? They try to win the game by themselves, right? They're, they're trigger happy. They won't pass the ball. They keep shooting. You have to steal the ball from your own guy just so you can actually try to, try to right? So this is what happens sometimes with, with Moses. He was, he was prepared. He was, he was ready. He was educated. He had everything he needed to be this great conduit of God's grace and saving his people. And yet he, he was put in the game and he screwed up the first play. And now he's, out, he's on the bench again. And God's like, okay, the coach sits down next to him. Let's try this again, right? 40 years worth, but let's try this again. And so this is such a grace to me that he's sitting there by the well, and then the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came to draw water and fill the troughs of water for their father's flock. Verse 17, the shepherds came down, drove them away, and here's Moses, here's this man of action, here's this man of empathy and compassion, this defender of the oppressed. Is he sitting there? Did he give up? Did he just say, well, whatever? Good, I'm glad someone else is having a bad day too. Like, did he, did he start to do those things? No. What, what does he do? I love one verse. He stood up. He saved them and he watered their flock. He stood up. He saved them. He served them. He stood up. This is who he is. I love that. And the reason I know that he's already learning humility in this failure is that he not only stood up and he saved them, he didn't kill all these shepherds, he drove them off, but then he served the women. He watered their flock for them. That's a menial task. That's a male serving women in a very patriarchal society, a male-centered society. That doesn't happen. He stood up. He saved them. He served them. And they came home and they talked about this Egyptian delivering them out of the hand of the shepherds. Very familiar language. He invited them. He invited Moses to come eat. And Moses was content to dwell with the man. Moses was content. A man from the palace and receiving the scorn of being associated, identified with slaves. Now he's in this foreign land. He's a sojourner. He doesn't, doesn't know what's next, sitting down by a well. And he, he stands up, he saves, he serves. God sees that. God uses that and moves this man into a new time of preparation. 
God gives them a new place to live. He gives them a new vocation. He gives them a new family. What, a, what an amazing God we serve. Out of that great failure, God said, I'm not done with you. I've got plans for you. And God would train him up to the point where Moses was known as the most meek, the most humble man in all the earth, Numbers 12.3. How did he learn this humility? By all the work God was doing in his life. And now he needed to learn to depend on the one who created him so that God can use him for his own glory. Ultimately, this is God's work, the work of salvation. But we are called as his sons and daughters, as his church, to be on mission. We are to be making disciples. We are to be going out and taking the gospel to those who are lost. Are we doing our job? Are we doing our work? Are we doing it in his power, not our own? Is God receiving the glory from your life, or are you receiving it? Those are just some questions to ask by way of application as you leave. Who's receiving the glory? Who's doing the work? Are you letting God do the work of preparation in you through patience, through endurance, through suffering? Ultimately, Jesus Christ is the one who saves. I'll end with a a hymn by Horatius Bonner, and then we'll pray. The hymn says, Not what my hands have done can save my guilty soul. Not what my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. No strength save that which is divine can bear me safely through. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your servant Moses. Thank you that his life is an example to us. Thank you that you were pointing to your son Jesus as you did this great salvation, this great deliverance of your people from the bondage, slavery in Egypt to the promised land. And although um, there were judgments and corrections and warnings along the way, Lord, you were always pleased to fulfill your promise to your people. You are faithful, Lord. And we thank you that through your son Jesus, his death on the cross, his burial, his resurrection from the dead on the third day, that if we put our faith in him, that his righteousness becomes ours. He took on and bore our sins and took on the full wrath of God for the wages of sin is death. We were apart from you forever, Lord. We, we had no way to get to you. There is no works that we can do. There is, no, there is no great achievements we can accomplish to save ourselves. We cannot do it. It is your work alone, Jesus, on the cross. And so we put our faith in you and we follow you by your Holy Spirit that now indwells us as a promise, as a seal of this work that you've done. We live for you and not ourselves. Please take the love of the world out of us, Father, and send us in to love the world fully with pure hearts, with your name on our lips. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. We repent of loving Egypt, of loving the treasures of this world more than we love you, of of denying you at times, Father, because of the persecutions that come with being associated with your name. Forgive us, Father. We repent of that as well. Give us boldness to speak truth. Help us not to shy away from giving hope through your your name, Lord Jesus, to those who are lost. So many people around us, Lord, right now 
need hope. So many people around us are willing to have conversations they might not have had before. Give us words to speak, Father. Please bring more into this family. Help us to be obedient in discipling them, to walk with them, to teach them everything you've commanded us to obey. And by doing that, Lord, may you receive the glory and honor. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from the Word of God. If you don't have a church home, we invite you to visit Black Forest Chapel in Black Forest, Colorado, near Monument and just north of Colorado Springs. You'll find biblical teaching and authentic worship in an environment that feels like family and friends. Get directions and more information at blackforestchapel.org.